But the Catholics were saying they could pave your way to hell if you gave them money. So our scientists tell us that, except they have freedom from hell, but they don't have heaven, they just have nothingness. Welcome to The One You Feed. Throughout time, great thinkers have recognized the importance of the thoughts we have. Quotes like, garbage in, garbage out, or you are what you think, ring true. And yet, for many of us, our thoughts don't strengthen or empower us. We tend toward negativity, self-pity, jealousy, or fear. We see what we don't have instead of what we do. We think things that hold us back and dampen our spirit. But it's not just about thinking. Our actions matter. It takes conscious, consistent, and creative effort to make a life worth living. This podcast is about how other people keep themselves moving in the right direction, how they feed their good wolf. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us. Our guest on this episode is Bob Thurman, a professor of Indo-Tibetan Buddhist studies in the Department of Religion at Columbia University. He's also the president of the Tibet House U.S., a nonprofit organization dedicated to the preservation and promotion of Tibetan civilization. And he is also the president of the American Institute of Buddhist Studies. Bob is the author of many books, including the one him and Eric discuss here, Wisdom is Bliss. Four friendly, fun facts that can change your life. Hi, Bob. Welcome to the show. Hi, Eric. I'm very happy to be here with you again. Yes, it is a pleasure to have you back on. I greatly appreciate it. We're going to be discussing your latest book, which is called Wisdom is Bliss, Four Friendly, Fun Facts That Can Change Your Life. But before we do that, we'll start like we always do with a parable. There's a grandfather who's talking with his grandson. He says, in life, there are two wolves inside of us that are always at battle. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness and bravery and love. And the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. The grandson stops and he thinks about it for a second. And he looks up at his grandfather and he says, well, grandfather, which one wins? And the grandfather says, the one you feed. So I'd like to start off by asking you what that parable means to you in your life and in the work that you do. Well, I think that's a lovely parable in the sense that it implies that you have the choice to choose which one to feed. And uh, also, of course, even more basically, that everyone has both sides in their being. 
and and yet they're not doomed to follow the fierce one or the angry one or follow the good one. In a way, they are presented as kind of equal, and that the one who you feed in your freedom as a free being, which we basically are, you can choose to strengthen the good one. And uh, it doesn't sort of address the issue of do you want to kill off the bad one? Or do you want to change the bad one into being an ally of the good one, etc.? I mean, you could take it further, which he leaves the grandpa. Grandpa leaves that open. <laughs> <laughs> but I like it in that sense that at least uh, you, you know your own shadow side and you choose to be the good one if, if you're smart. In a way, I think it would be nice if they continued the conversation and if grandpa had wisdom, I think maybe he would say, how the good one would relate to the bad one. Because, of mm. course, it always is the danger, even you feed the good one, the bad one will attack it and destroy it. And he's sort of not addressing that, because he's talking to a grandchild, apparently a young one. Yeah. So he's just he's culti- helping him cultivate the awareness of his freedom and of the fact that he has a shadow side. But he does, yep. he's not resolving the issue. I'm a happy ending person. <laughs> I always was, actually, as a child, which to me is a proof of former life because I didn't do anything great in this life particularly. And I'm pretty much like I've been hiding in my ivory tower of the educational world. And I didn't do much, but I always didn't like tragedies. I mean, I could understand them, but I didn't like ending with the tragedies. I wanted somewhere beyond the suffering of the tragic hero and I didn't like movies that ended in misery, you know. Mm. I really didn't. And, uh, or books or anything. I wanted the happy ending, and I still do. Well, that's interesting. Nobody has ever suggested that I can remember that somebody ought to write the rest of the wolf story. That's a brilliant idea. I pulled this from near the end of your book because uh, I thought it spoke so well to the parable. I'm just going to read it uh, to you and the listeners here. Okay. um, Because I think it's basically the parable uh, you wrote. That means you read all the way to the end. I'm deeply honored. That's right. The Buddhist view is that the human being is completely malleable in their wiring. Any human being can become a saint and very easygoing, and any human being can become quite evil and very, very difficult if they go on the dark side, and all degrees in between. That's basically the wolf parable. And then you say, actually, every human being is constantly changing all the time. If you don't become more conscious about how you change and what changes things and what influences you, and you do not choose what you allow to influence you by using your intelligent discrimination, then you will probably be changed for the worse. Right. That's wonderful. Well, you know, my Wisdom is Bliss book about how it is through bliss energy, joy energy, that we're going to meet these challenges. And we're going to deal with the bad wolves, and we're going to reinforce the good ones. And uh, the issue of the how if you just kind of let yourself go in the stream, you will probably be conditioned toward the dark side. Our civilization, or would-be civilization on the planet, is based on fear to a great degree for the last 5,000 years, I would say. It seems that there was a time when the women, the female side of the human team, was stronger, if not dominant, perhaps even dominant, uh, what they call the civilization of the goddess. 
as some archaeologists do anyway. And there, there was much less violence and things were more peaceful and there were less fortified cities, et cetera, et cetera. And then these uh, male people came off the great steppes of Eurasia. Uh, this is, I'm talking sort of Eurasia-centered because that's what we have the writing about. We don't really know about the Mayans and the Aztecs except through European propaganda. So we don't know about the Americas in the ancient times, so I'm not talking about that. But uh, we know about Eurasia. So we've been conditioned to feel we need to depend on leaders. We've been terrified that reality is nature red in tooth and claw, that other beings are potentially dangerous. So we need to depend on the warrior king or the high priest. And we're sort of taught that ignorance is bliss because reality is very dangerous. And nowadays, the version of it by the scientists is that we're this lonely crunch of creatures on this one only planet in this sort of vast universe of these stars. And although they look nice twinkling at night, they're hot and boiling. And in between is a gulf of total death where you'd explode, you know, if you didn't have a Michelin man suit on. <laughs> and it's our own thing is very fragile. But luckily, if we get all killed, if we wreck the whole place, as we we're obviously doing at the moment, there will just be nothing. So at least there's no hell. And so the, you know, the, the equivalent of the indulgence that uh, Martin Luther was disturbed about in the time of the Reformation that the Catholics were saying they could pave your way to hell if you gave them money. So our scientists tell us that, except they have freedom from hell, but they don't have heaven, they just have nothingness. But at least it's anesthetic. We don't have, you know, they promise us that we won't feel pain in, in after death, you know, which is what we're really scared of. We pretend to ourselves that we're scared of being annihilated, and the, and the scientists reinforce that idea to make themselves feel macho. But actually, nobody is afraid of annihilation when they're in serious pain. They seek it, actually. They crave it because it's anesthesia. And so this is a false dispensation that the science priesthood, the scientific priesthood, not scientific, but scientific priesthood, offers to the planet why we should follow their prescriptions about lack of spirituality and lack of seeking a higher sort of level in ourselves. So therefore, they lead us into a kind of apathy about just following the currents of the culture. But you know what? If at this moment we follow either the current of some religious fanatic culture where you're based on fear, fear of hell, so you follow a certain god, either Hindu or Buddhist or Jewish or Muslim, and that god will save you when everybody else goes down the drain, and people who don't believe in that god they will go down the drain. So you're in your isolated little clique. So that's the one side you can, you can sort of put your blind faith in. Or the other side is you put your blind faith in annihilation, in anesthesia, in nothingness. And you can just flow with the secular culture or one of the religious cultures and not take care of the situation and be responsible with the idea that you're going to be involved in it, whatever. You're just like... You will not abuse your body in youth, usually, because you want to live older. So you won't do things that will damage the body and make you suffer when you're older. Right. And we do that as a practicality, usually. Some people. And sometimes we, we don't know what's harming us when we're young, so we'll get into bad habits, of course. Yep. But the point is, basically, we try not to 
because we look forward to a consequence. So similarly, if all the humans on this planet look forward to a consequence based on how they're living, they would not do anything harmful to other creatures. They would not be harmful to future generations by wrecking the planet. They would be much more responsible and less psychotic. Yeah, yeah. So, so that is what I'm sort of saying there, that the wisdom is bliss view. And the main thing that, that I feel the Buddha was trying to convey, but I also think it's what Jesus was trying to convey. Actually, all of them, they did convey it. Muhammad was trying to convey it. The great Jewish prophets and the many great saintly rabbis conveyed it. The Hindus, great yogis and enlightened beings, the Taoists, etc. Every great spiritual founder conveyed to people that uh, reality is good. And even the scientists at first, who thought that nature was God's gift to us, and if we studied nature, we would, without dogma, and just by whatever we observed, we would be able to manage well in this beautiful planet, which God gave us. They were quite religious, the early scientists, in the, in the Enlightenment, the Western Enlightenment, 17th century. They were not anti-religion like the current ones, but I don't blame the current ones for being anti-religion in the sense that the religions have become very dogmatic. Right. Unfortunately, right. they've also become dogmatic that there's no spirituality, and that has doomed people to just follow the herd, unfortunately, yeah. you know, counting on no consequence of how they behave. Right. But what the great founders and teachers have told us, East, West, spiritual, scientific, is reality is good and you get back what you put into it. Mm. You know, what goes around comes around, those kind of statements. And so you've got to put good stuff out there. And the good stuff for us to put out there would be to listen to Greta Thunberg and to take care of our grandchildren's future and immediately turn off fossil fuel machinery, methane-producing feedlots, bad agriculture, chemical agriculture, etc. All of this we would immediately stop, not just... By 2040, 2050, the fake stuff politicians tell you, but uh, just turn it off right away. And then we use all our technological genius to create alternative energy sources, which we know how to do already. Let's start sort of at the beginning of your book and talk about what you're referring to as four friendly fun facts. All right. Thank you. That's good. Which are normally referred to as the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism. I love the fact that you've rephrased it as Four Friendly Fun Facts. First, <laughs> let's start with why are you calling them that versus the Four Noble Truths? Let's start with kind of why you titled it that. Well, you know, the Noble Truth is not wrong. So it's not that I'm saying it's wrong, but I'm saying it has connotations about the early encounter with Buddha's teaching, Buddha's mission and movement by Western people. Noble is a class term which Buddha changed from being a social class term to being a psychological class term, meaning an ignoble to him, or what he would call a commoner, is someone who is very self-preoccupied and self-centered, and who just uh, is sort of hardly aware of the existence of other people. We might say narcissistic, as some psychologists might say, and therefore is quite miserable because they're only in their own world and nobody else matters not much to them, and other people end up being not that fond of them, actually, because they're just only always out to feed themselves. Talk about feed the one you feed, they just feed themselves. 
So then that's commoner. And then noble is someone who develops an awareness which can be done methodically through education. Some people have a natural, are born with a stronger affinity for that. But everyone has both possibilities. In a way, they're the good and the bad wolf. And the good one is the altruistic one. And that's very strengthened by an education where they really learn that actually other people are just as important as themselves. And in a way, if they don't realize the importance of the other, they're not really recognizing their own importance. And they even realize they're more important when they realize they can do something for the many others. That makes them more important. So altruism strengthens the sense of self-worth, actually, naturally, automatically. So it's really, as the Dalai Lama likes to say, if you want to be successfully selfish, meaning get a, have a good outcome, be more altruistic. Because <laughs> <laughs> when, when you care about others, the first person who gets happier is you. Because yep. once you're looking only at how happy you are, you're never satisfied. You always want more. You know? yeah. Whereas when you look at others' happiness a lot, there's a lot of things you can do for them all. And then you forget about how unhappy you are and get better. So that's what noble means. Noble, noble in his use of it, Buddha, is he's saying just by birth, that doesn't give you altruism, although a noble should have noblesse oblige and take care of the people who depend on the noble person. In a good society, they do. But actually, often they don't, unfortunately. So noble is when you really feel the pulse of others as equal to your own in importance, and you become more we-oriented than I-oriented, and that makes you happier and healthier, okay? So that's what noble meant. And But then I'm saying, since we have a double connotation of noble as some sort of high-faluting, snotty person, that friendly is a good definition for friendly, because your true friend is one who cares about you, and you can rely on them, because to them, you are important, and that's a true friend. The word of truth is, again, not wrongs. The word satya can mean truth, but truth has two meanings in English. One is reality itself, and one is propositions about reality. You know, as I sort of said in different words before, the third noble truth, or the third friendly fact that the Buddha taught, that it was the root of his whole popularity and usefulness, is that the deepest level of reality, when you discover what it really is, you find that it is it itself is good. It's nice. It's love. It's abundance. It's energy that can help you, not the destructive. And so you, you should not have ultimate fear. You should be afraid of some temporarily damaging or ruinous thing when you something you feel is separate from you, like a scorpion is about to sting you in its tail. You should be afraid of that. So fear can be useful. But the ultimate level of everything beyond sort of life and death, or maybe in the heart of life and death, both, is goodness. And it's the stronger force. And it's actually quite similar to what theists believe. But Buddha didn't necessarily think it was one person monopolizing that goodness. They think that same goodness is in the reality of every person and every even stone and object and planet and whatever. And it's the nature of the final reality. In a way, it's like the dark matter and the dark energy and the bright one. 3% bright, it's 97% dark, as we are told by the physicists nowadays. But it's not really that it's dark, it's that it's transparent. So it's invisible. But that invisible reality is goodness. It's total goodness. And that's what, the, that's what nice monotheists believe, because they think God is good. 
But the fanatic ones, they don't care, good or bad. They just think God is their God, and they think they can be bad in the name of God. And and the, and the gods actually don't really like it, yep. according to Buddha. The gods are unhappy with that. So that's the reason I came to Friendly Facts, because reality is friendly. It likes us. Whenever we let go to reality, it's better for us than when we try to impose something on reality. I love that. And four friendly fun facts is great <laughs> alliteration, Bob. It's great alliteration. Well, it's fun to say. It is. Four friendly fun facts. <laughs> That's right. I could have added free freedom. <laughs> that is the friendly freedom of reality, too, you know. What We Loved is a new podcast about queer history coming May 15th. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, your host. Growing up, I thought being gay was the worst thing I could ever be. The gay history I learned was tragic. Jerry had died of AIDS and it's like, what is happening? It was survival. That's why it's called survival sex. But as I interviewed queer elders, I realized there was another history that I had never been taught a history of courage and perseverance. I wanted to take control of my story and not be ashamed of it. And it was a history full of love. The joy we found in saying husband again and again and again was incredible. And while learning this new queer history from my elders, I realized they had so much wisdom to pass down. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. For My Heart Podcasts, I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and this is But We Loved. Listen to But We Loved May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true, and I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things, and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Uh, thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's walk through what these four 
friendly fun facts are. I don't think we've done an episode where we really took apart and examined the Four Noble Truths, or in this case, the Four Friendly Fun Facts. So this might be sort of a, a, a Buddhism 101 here on what they are. So what is the first friendly fun fact? I just, I can't get enough of saying it. (laughs) First one is that if you continue not to take responsibility to understand your reality and the ultimate reality, which is your ultimate reality as well as the world, if you do, you will be stressed out. You will be frustrated. But that's still okay because you're going to find it eventually anyway because the knocks will get you to take it more seriously you know, in the stressful life. And it's not as extreme as Socrates once said, the unexamined life is not worth living. It is definitely worth living, especially as a human. Humans are the luckiest of all the life forms, including more lucky than the gods. Buddha certainly believed there were gods. He was not against uh, theism, but he just didn't say there was one that completely in charge of it all. That's all. He didn't blame one for everything or give one credit for everything. They're all helping, or and there are a few who are a little bit clumsy and harmful now and then, but they're there. So the point is, human is the best because we're vulnerable, and yet we have a kind of divine intelligence, and we have a close to a, an enlightened intelligence. And so we can have a meaningful life. But even if we don't use it well, and we just sort of follow the herd, we don't take the road less traveled, let's say, uh, it's definitely worth living because life itself is a teacher. It will teach us. So one of my motives in the book was to counteract the atmosphere emerging from a lot of Buddhist teachings and teachers and misunderstandings of Buddhism that Buddha is very much emphasizing suffering and and you're supposed to suffer. And if you don't suffer all the time, you're somehow being unrealistic. And that's very wrong. But in a way, that reflects what uh, other world scientific traditions kind of tell us that Wisdom is being resigned to the basically inadequate level of life. It's a bad planet. Nature wants to eat us up. And, you know, we're never going to be that happy. So being miserable is realistic or something like that. And and Buddha is against that. He's just saying, if you don't find reality, which you're capable of finding, and is right there in front of your face, in fact, it is in your face. (laughs) But if you keep neglecting and living in denial of it, It'll be stressful. That's the first friendly fact. Don't expect if you get to be president, if you even get to be God, if you get to be whatever you think is the ultimate state of a separate being from every other being, that it'll be you'll be fine. That'll be the limit, the end. No. Got it. It'll never work. No. Unless you see reality, you will continue to be, as you say, stressed or to suffer if we don't see reality. So number two, second friendly fun fact. Now, this is where friendliness gets stronger because you know what? We can diagnose the cause of the stress. And it's very simple. You think that you are the main center of everything. And even you're told by some psychologies and some traditions, you should think that. That that's what you're supposed to think. And that's very, very erroneous. And it's obviously a futile situation. If I'm the most important thing, I'm immediately paranoid. Because I realize nobody else agrees with me. <laughs> <laughs> they all, on top of that, they have the 
temerity to think they're the most important things, and they know I don't agree with them. So it's a war of all against all, as Hobbes said, you know, in the Western uh -huh. philosophy guy. And you lose, and you because there's so many of them. You know, if you're the most greatest, you're going to lose. They're going to bring you down, you know. So it's not even rocket science, but it is a good diagnosis. Because it's not merely moralistic telling you, you shouldn't be self-centered. What it's saying is, well, you have a self-centered element because you're human and because your culture has made you like that. And uh, when you were in previous lives as an animal and as a god, you were like that and whatever you were. But luckily, as a human, you can become self-reflective and you can investigate yourself and quite easily discover that you're just one of the ones. You're not the one. As my old Mongolian, in a very simple way, teacher used to say, it's correct that you're a reality. You're real. But the problem is each of us tends to think we're the really realist. Uh -huh. And that's a mistake. Others are equally real. Because again, some people will misunderstand the Buddha's teaching as, and all spiritual teaching is you have to be somehow self-destructive. You have to say, I don't even exist. And I'll be a martyr and come destroy me. And then I'm, then I'm saintly. And that's quite wrong. Your ego is very useful. It should make you want to use your human life in the best way possible to be the best kind of being possible. And, and that's a very easy to see what would be the best kind of being. Totally happy and totally loving, maximally capable of making others happy. Although ultimately, one of the things is you can't make any other person happy. Yep. They have to find that you can only help them find their happiness in themselves. So that's the second noble truth is the diagnosis. Yes. And so it struck me when I was reading, you know, you summarized these things at one point and you said, what's the cause of our confusion? We talked about not right. seeing reality in the first one. What's the cause? The cause is self-centeredness. And right. it took me back because when I got sober in AA way back when, there's a line in the AA big book that says the root of our problem is selfishness, self-centeredness. And I was blown away by that. Mm -hmm. And again, I think what you say there is so important because if when we hear that, oftentimes we're told that in a moralizing way, you know, yes. you're so selfish, you're so self-centered. Yes, yes, yes. What I understood when I read that, I mean, didn't fully understand, I've been trying to live my way into it for 30 years, but what hit me so clearly and what you're saying is that that strategy is doomed to cause suffering. Because like you said, I think I'm the most important thing in the world. You think you're the most important thing in the world. Everybody else thinks the exact same thing. And boom, we are always in misalignment. And when right. we can just loosen up on that a little bit, at whatever level we're capable of, of right. slowly shedding that belief that we are the center of everything, boy, does life get better. Right, right. That's wonderful. I think you put that so beautifully. And, uh, you know, the issue of addiction is so important. And the diagnosis involves analyzing this, the system of habitual, what they call, kleshas, Sanskrit word, klesha, which people, I also used to translate as affliction, mental affliction. Because it's not only an emotion, it can also be some sort of rigid idea. You know, it can be a rigid concept as well as an emotion. But they're usually hatred, delusion. Delusion is where the concepts come in and then greed, and jealousy, and exaggerated pride, you know, arrogance. And uh, but those are mental addictions. And they're addictions because, you know, when you feel weak in a situation, somebody's making problems for you, 
then anger comes in your mind and it's in your own voice and it tells you, well, they're pushing me around because I'm, I'm not strong enough, but if I get angry, that'll make me stronger. And at first it feels like you're stronger when you're in a rage, but actually any martial arts guy would just toss you out the window, turning your old imbalanced fury against itself and, you know, staying cool and just getting out of your way and then you go run into a wall. And so... Those are addictions meant we have mental addictions, the root of, of, mm-hmm. of, of substance addictions, which are so spectacular in our society, though, is that we are not given in our education a way of understanding mental addictions that we could easily understand. And they are the root by when you get free of the mental addictions and you realize, hey, anger, don't you're free to choose not to follow the dictate of the anger, not to follow the dictate of the greed not to follow the jealousy, not to follow the arrogance, but to follow the delusion. I'm free. I don't have to have this rigid idea. I don't have to hit that guy. I don't have to do this. When we find that freedom in our mind, then we become a little bit immune to that. And then we will also not be trapped. You know, the four friendly facts are actually like you have a friendly doctor. Buddha's not like a prophet or a religion or a moralizer or a preacher. He couldn't preach. He said, I can't make you happy. I can't give you a formula that if you adopt it and keep repeating it yourself, you'll be fine. It won't help. You have to do it yourself. But I'm giving you a good prognosis, and I'm giving you a good set of therapies, but you have to apply them yourself. Yeah, I love that about them. It's like a doctor's thing. Right. So that's the second noble truth is the diagnosis. And the third is the prognosis, which I'm trying to deliver ahead of time to everybody. <laughs> And that prognosis is not become a Buddhist, or it's not become any particular new identity. Don't strap on to your ego yet another identity. Oh, I'm a Buddhist. I'm an American. I'm a male. I'm a white. I'm a black. I'm a female. I'm a, I'm a red. I'm a green. Whatever it is. None of those things will help. What it is is you have to try to relax and start unlearning self and opening, and the one place where Buddha said, well, give him a little credibility. He asked for a little credibility, but the way he got it was by being so incredibly joyful himself. He was a special effect. He was like an E.T. <laughs> you know, the guy met the little E.T. in the closet. He made a light with his fingertip, mm-hmm. and he looked totally harmless, but he could do, like, magical things. And so then that he had a little credibility with the little kid. He thought, this guy is really cool. I'm not going to expose him to the CIA or the surgeons or somebody who wants to dissect him to find out how he does these supernormal things. So Buddha showed a form. They say he made himself, created himself. He himself was a work of art. And, and he showed sort of, just like, you know, we fall in love with, some wonderful singer or people identified with movie stars or in ancient time, some handsome prince or a beautiful queen or something, or your fairy godmothers, you know, one would have these kind of ideal beings. And then that would give you like hope. Well, if someone can be like that, I can be like that type of idea, you know, by depending on them. But in this case, the being who is like that just said, well, yes, you could be like that, but I can't make you like that. And only depending on me and thinking I'm cool, won't help. You have to find the coolness in yourself. And the credibility is just there that he showed us by example. He Just like a good parent, you know, 
A good parent can tell a lot of stuff to the kids, but ultimately the kids will believe how the parent behaves. Yep. If the parent talks all moralistic stuff and then they have a, a foul temper, they're very greedy and only think about their money, they're stingy about dishing out allowance, <laughs> <laughs> they're like nasty punishing people and so on. Because we don't believe that people, we, we look at some how they act, you know, by their deeds. Jesus himself said, just like Buddha, by their deeds ye shall know them. Right. And so Buddha was a high prince, could have been a king, had an army. He was, you know, all, kings are always commanders in chief in old societies. And he left it all, he gave it back. He said, I want to really discover what is real and I want to really help people, not boss them around. So then the third noble truth is, the prognosis, we are on the brink of freedom, the brink of superintelligence, the brink of awareness of what we really are, and the minute we know it, we will be it, and we'll feel totally great. And then we'll be so helpful to everyone we love, and we'll find out we love more people than we thought. So it's a really good prognosis, okay? Then the fourth noble truth. I used to say even, and people used to say, well, just like the second is the cause of the first, the fourth is the cause of the third. Just like you go to the doctor, you have a symptom, they recognize the symptom, diagnose the cause, and then you have a prognosis, and that gives you hope you can cure it, and then he gives you the therapy. Those analogies only go so far, because in this case, the fruit, the good result, already there, actually. It has always been there, nirvana. It's the ultimate, it's the actual reality of life. In the deepest teaching. When you first reach it, maybe you think it's something different from life, but then that could be a trap, and then you get separated in another way. So it's uncaused. Nothing causes it. And that's why Buddha can't just put you on a train and you arrive there. So what the fourth is, is the therapy of how you can open your own mind, not how you can believe something, but how you can open your own mind to find in your own self and in the world around you this reality, which is the freedom and the bliss. Bliss, freedom, indivisible, they will say. They call freedom voidness or emptiness, meaning emptiness of any stuck thing or absolute thing. And uh, that's the Eightfold Path, and that's what the real main substance of the book is. Just to do a quick summary, first noble truth, the diagnosis, which is if you're confused about reality, you will suffer. Second truth being that the main thing that causes us to be confused about reality is our self-centeredness, our thinking we're separate. The third noble truth is, hey, this can get better. You can fix this. There's a path. Mm -hmm. And the fourth noble truth lays out what that path is, which is often called the eightfold path. And right. we're not going to be able to go through the whole Eightfold Path because we are near out of time. But there's a couple of parts of it that I wanted to hit that I thought would be really interesting. Okay. And the first is I want to jump all the way to number eight 
on the eightfold path. Right. And use the term instead of using, oftentimes we say that these things on the eightfold path are like right speech, right livelihood. You use the word realistic. So realistic speech, realistic livelihood. But the last one is realistic samadhi, which is often translated as sort of realistic meditation. But what's interesting is you write that you may have heard that Buddhism is basically or even only meditation and that meditation is the most important thing you can do and that learning is okay, but not really important. Practice, we are told, is meditation. Right. Say more about that because, yeah, I think that is one of the messages that came through for me in 20 years of reading Buddhist books was... Right, right. But We Loved is a new podcast about queer history coming May 15th. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, your host. Growing up, I thought being gay was the worst thing I could ever be. The gay history I learned was tragic. Jerry had died of AIDS, and it's like, what is happening? It was survival. That's why it's called survival sex. But as I interviewed queer elders, I realized there was another history that I had never been taught, a history of courage and perseverance. I wanted to take control of my story and not be ashamed of it. And it was a history full of love. The joy we found in saying husband again and again and again was incredible. And while learning this new queer history from my elders, I realized they had so much wisdom to pass down. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. For My Heart Podcasts, I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and this is But We Loved. Listen to But We Loved May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Practice, practice, practice. Meditate, meditate, meditate. And if you're not doing that, then you're not really engaged in the path. And you're saying something different. So talk to me, Bob. So a couple of things there. Uh, Well, first, let me just say, I know you didn't want to start at the beginning, and I won't completely except simply to say (laughs) that we have this tendency to what I call absolutize things. And we project sort of essential and unvarying realities into things. So we think that the table is really a table. And we think that I am really me, most importantly. And so you could take worldview as belief. You could translate that as belief and you could say, Bob, you're wrong. Buddhism is dogmatic and you have to believe something. But in a way, what is the realistic belief or view? It is fundamentally nothing but a belief in causation, that things are a process of causation or relativity. It's a belief in relativity. And why that is so powerful is that the subliminal belief that we have that is the cause of, you know, when you mentioned the cause, you said self-centeredness was the cause because of confusion. But the confusion is the root of the self-centeredness. In other words, it's an exaggerated sense of fixed self. It's the absolute, you see. The relative self is a great thing, and we need that. And that's often the Buddhist. There is a statement of selflessness, which is very important in Buddhist teaching. And he means by that, not that you don't exist, which is the wrong way of understanding it. He means by that, that you exist with and only with a relative self. Yourself is interrelated with everything. It's not the absolute thing. So you could be forgiven for being self-centered when you feel that 
yourself is the absolute. Do you follow me? Because that's mm -hmm. the realest thing. So therefore, I'm going to be focused on it. When you realize that you are a relative, then you still have to be focused on it to be responsible for yourself and compassionate for your relative self, which feels and experiences and, and has happiness and has suffering when it's not fully aware of the deeper reality of things. So that's very, very key. And now the other end, the last one, samadhi, is not really meditation. What samadhi means is total concentration, sort of the most absolute a relative being can get by being very able to use their mind in one-pointed focus on whatever it is. So it's sort of almost like willpower. It's like, it's realistic realization. It is really like, okay, I realize that all of reality is this relativity. And I've realized that by analyzing and investigating it, which is the most important thing. That's how Buddha, I'm unlearning all sorts of dogmas and cultural conditionings and even neural wrong wirings from culture. And so the, its investigation is the real practice of Buddhism, in fact. And the meditation part is a tool in that that's a really, really important. They're not wrong in saying that. It is really important. But within the two types of meditation, one of them called, you could say, critical, analytic, or investigative meditation, and the other one, one-pointed, deep-focused meditation, which is the samadhi one. The more important one is the investigation one. So the seventh realistic path is realistic mindfulness, which means opening the mind to what's going on in the mind and in the world, and noticing that I don't have to be angry and I don't have to be depressed. That's one choice I could make, but I could also choose not to be, because I become aware of the mechanisms of the mind and how the, what I'm addicted to, what are my habits. And I can then gradually undo those habits, replace them with more positive habits, more free habits. This mental freedom is the real thing that is, because reality, when we're fully free and fully open, we are our reality, actually. And then we realize our reality is this wonderful, loving interconnectedness with everyone. Empty of that one being absolute or this one being absolute or anything rigidly fit this way or that way. And that's what's so great about it. We then can draw from wherever it's needed, whatever it is, to make any relative situation ultimately better. So the absoluteness spreads and smears itself over the whole of the relativity, including all of the beings. And so it's all one big, huge happiness, you could say. You know? And then the only thing that would stand out in it would be anybody persisting in unhappiness and all everybody else would be all wanting to help them find it. And that would be their more fun. That would be their realistic thing to do and become almost automatic. So when you sort of work through that inferentially, you sort of realize that given beginningless past, there's no first beginning. Big Bang, Genesis, those are all cultural pretenses that we know where it all started. So therefore, we are in charge of you. There are sort of false certainties stuck on us which attract our absoluteness and make us then subjected to the people who pretend to know this. Because who would ever know the first beginning? How could there be a beginning? <laughs> a beginning means an ending of something before it. You know, a limit means there's something on both sides of the limit, a limited thing here and then other things. So it's just completely a misuse of language to say a beginning out of nothing. It's just sort of an assertion. Meaningless, actually, incoherent. But then if you get attached to it, you get really fanatical about it. It attracts our tendency 
to find security in being stuck somewhere. Because once we think we're separate, as we're given reality, then we want to be really separated so nothing else can bother us. Buddha was a scientist, as you know, I make a big fuss about it. And therefore, he opened the door for us to discover the reality that we ourselves are, and we are related to, and what's precious about us is our ability to understand what we are by critical investigation and education and so on, and developing our powerful mind. And then once we have it focused toward freedom, then meditation comes and totally makes that a kind of power of freedom. If we meditate right away, when we are stuck in all kinds of wrong views or unrealistic views, then it will heighten our entrapment in the unrealism. And that's why we've seen in the teachings of the Asian traditions, or even in Western spiritualities, actually, where they want to actually achieve something like Jonestown, you know, these cults, you know, mm -hmm. where they think they're going to really meet Jesus or something. You know, they're not just going to think Jesus later is going to take care of them. They're going to really do something. Then you get these absolutistic behaviors by people, uh, which is worse. And people meditate on them, and then they practically will kill themselves. And they'll do all terrible, and they'll hurt other people, and they'll do terrible things. They'll have jihads or crusades, or they'll be nasty to the Muslims, like, like fanatic Buddhists got to be in Burma and in Sri Lanka, which shows you that even Buddhism as a religion yep. can be falsely absolutistic. So the point there is then that it's a progression. When you are walking down the street and someone asks you, I'm a broke, I'm a veteran, you know, I, I have no food, I can't eat, you know, and then you could give them a quarter. Your mind will say all sorts of things. Why are they doing this? Must be their own fault. I should turn them into the ASPCA or, the, or whatever it is, you know, the, they should go to the shelter, they should go on welfare or something, you know, and I don't, I'm not doing that. Well, okay. But that could be practical maybe in some, if there was a thousand of them and you only had two quarters. But if you could give a quarter when it's not the end of your own livelihood and you don't, then you are closing yourself. And that little gift is, you by doing that little gift, that's, that's practicing Buddhism. Mm. Talking yourself out of following the cultural thing of there must be something wrong with them because they're poor, and I don't have to, they'll contaminate me even if I touch them. <laughs> and instead, what a nice, they're giving me the opportunity to give them something. But the point is, it's an, it's an advantageous moment for you to be nice and be happy by doing that. And that's the practice of Buddhism. And then critically learning about reality and trying to critically eliminate the absolutes that are stuck everywhere by everyone who wants you to absolutely follow them in some way, and you will be more and more free gradually, and then you learn. You know, I love Eckhart Tolle, the Power of Now guy. I love him because his story was that he was talking himself into suicide, and he was hearing his own voice telling him the worthlessness of life, worthlessness of living, worthlessness of the world, and he should just do himself in somehow, taking him right down that drain, and somewhere he found in his mind another voice saying, why should I listen to you? You know, which still was also his own voice. In other words, he wasn't just hypnotized to follow the inner narrative that he was bound to because he identified it as his thinking. And he found another voice in his mind that said, wait a minute, why am I listening only to this narrative? And he did it without a shrink. He did it without anybody else interrupting him. Sort of. He found that that was mindfulness. 
That was hearing a deeper level of his own intuition. And so he got into his power of now to get away from negative thinking pattern. But but that's okay. That is in the same ballpark as the realistic mindfulness, what we call yeah. or real it's actually called realistic memory. Yeah. Or realistic awareness is the real literal translation of what we call mindfulness. And it means counting your blessings, actually. Observing what's really going on. And anybody who really observes, like right now. When you draw breath, and that's like the big meditative practice that people will sell as the main thing of Buddhism, and it is a very important thing. I'm not against it at all. But when it's the only thing, then it's not making use of the, the whole prescription. It's just picking one pill in the prescription. Yeah. And uh, But the point is, when you breathe, they just have you counting. But on the other hand, when you breathe, who should you be thankful for? All the plants. <laughs> They right. are giving you this oxygen, and they are taking your carbon. If you didn't cut them all down and like put smoke, smoke them out with fires, they are giving you the oxygen, and they love you. They have what you need, and you have what they need. Carbon to make their leaves and plants and flowers and new seeds for the next generation, and they're giving you the oxygen to live your human life. Take a deep breath, you know. So all of those things going down, and then the realistic samadhi is the concentrative side of meditation. The mindfulness is the analytic, investigative side of meditation. Both are crucially important, but the key is the wisdom. And it is said three types of wisdom. Wisdom born of learning. We are so arrogant as Westerners, we think we're the smartest people in the world that ever lived, because we can blow it up, and we are wrecking it. That means we're smart. Wait a minute, I think that things means we're a little backward, actually. We're irresponsible, actually. Because we keep having all these ways of disconnecting and disconnecting from nature, disconnecting from life, and then we think disconnecting from death by making it into nothing. But it isn't that. Death is just a, like falling asleep, having a bad nightmare, and waking up on a bad day if you had a previous bad day. You know, when you went to sleep in a horrible temper, anger, and, and frustration, and paranoia, and depression, then you were going to wake up in a bad way, usually. So wisdom born of learning, which is critical unlearning of all sorts of dogmas, and then wisdom born of meditation as investigation, like Descartes' type of meditation, like mindfulness, analyzing different things, and finally wisdom born of concentrated and investigative combined on a single point to focus on the freedom. Freedom embedded in relationality. So wisdom and compassion, indivisible. Wisdom and bliss, indivisible. That's the thing. Wonderful. I think that's a great place for us to wrap up. Bob, thank you so much for coming on the show. I hope I have your spirit and energy when I am your age. I really do. <laughs> well, don't wait for my age. <laughs> you, know, you have it already. I love you're the one you're feeding, and you're already doing it. And, uh, and you know, helping people find the dark side, helping them feed the good wolf, but not to pretend there's no dark wolf, and deal with the dark wolf. And that's really wonderful. All right. Thank you, Bob. Lots of love. Lots of Thank love you. to you. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye.
If what you just heard was helpful to you, please consider making a monthly donation to support the One You Feed podcast. When you join our membership community with this monthly pledge, you get lots of exclusive members-only benefits. It's our way of saying thank you for your support. Now, we are so grateful for the members of our community. We wouldn't be able to do what we do without their support, and we don't take a single dollar for granted. To learn more, make a donation at any level, and become a member of the One You Feed community, go to oneyoufeed.net slash join. The One You Feed podcast would like to sincerely thank our sponsors for supporting the show.